Hello and welcome everybody to the H3O podcast. I am Joel Rather here with my co-host Jason Hirsch. Jason, how are you? I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, excited for this chat. Aren't we all? Yeah. So um, happy today. We have a very special guest, uh, someone that uh, has taught me a lot over the years, whether he knows it or not, um, through <laughs> lots of instructional videos and things like that, and his shows. Um, he is the owner of Chapel Guide Services. He is the host of Elk Camp TV, which is now in season three on the Sportsman's Channel. Um, he also has his own uh, series of calls, the uh, Steve Chapel Signature Series calls with uh, Rocky Mountain. And uh, even further back has uh, some DVDs, uh, Extreme Bulls being one of them that, that's uh, pretty well known uh, for those of you that have probably seen and viewed some of those. So we're extremely excited to have uh, Steve Chapel on the show today. Steve, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing excellent. I really appreciate you guys having me on and I'm looking forward to visiting with you guys today. All things elk hunting, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what else? to get the itch. So I know. this is, uh, this is priming the pump, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Steve, you know, for, for those of the people that, that are listening that, that may not know, um, I know you, you grew up in Southern Colorado, correct? And, and, right. and now now live in uh, Arizona. What's, uh, t- tell everybody a little bit about your history, you know, how elk hunting became such a passion for you and, and kind of your path to where you are today, which is, you know, obviously could be a really long story, but maybe the, the condensed version of that. You bet. I was really fortunate and blessed to grow up in a family where hunting was just the norm from the very beginning. So, you know, my mom and dad raised me hunting, and uh, I can still remember going out at an early age and hunting, you know, birds and squirrels and rabbits with BB guns and then graduating to a 22 and, um, you know, going from there. So it started out at a very early age. My dad took me along on his mule deer hunts, which at the time I didn't really realize some of the incredible mule deer he took back in on the 70s and 80s. And now <laughs> I look at the mounts and I go, wow, yeah, amazing. Um you know, I was first introduced to elk hunting again by my dad, who, you know, took us as young boys up into the high country of Colorado, and uh, we would do the classic elk hunt up there in the in the high country with a wall tent and a stove and the horses and all of that. Yeah. So that kind of gave me the bug. Um, but I would say I first really got the bug for calling uh, there in the early '90s. Um, you know, when when Wayne Carlton, Will Primos, Rocky Jacobson, those guys were you know just getting well known for producing videos and uh putting elk calling on the map so to speak and i remember buying vhs tapes and watching that and just trying to emulate what they did and i would say that's really how i got my feet wet in elk hunting was watching those guys and learning from them way back then and um you know my first archery uh bow hunt for an elk was actually successful based on just emulating what those guys did. So um, that really gave me the bug right there when I uh, went up and hunted on my own, called a bull in on my own and killed it with my bow. I, I was I was hooked for life and I knew it was something <laughs> that I had to be involved with the rest of my life. So Yeah, I think, um, I, I know for me personally, yeah, uh, it's something about as you learn to shoot a bow, um, there, there's almost, I feel like an immediate addiction that comes with, with learning how to shoot. Um, 
and then thinking about the processes that go into that and, and then actually getting out into the field and, and knowing, you know, there's so many things that, that have to go right. And, and, you know, and it, and it boils down to you and, and even the proximity, you know, I, I mean, my first experience is elk hunting was rifle hunting. A good friend of mine, uh, who's part of kind of our team, Darby Flansburg. Um, he was the first one that kind of pulled me into elk hunting probably in about uh, year 2000 or so. And um, his dad grew up kind of at the south gate of Yellowstone. And, and so they hunted, you know, moose and, and elk and, and all sorts of things. And um, so I was, I was fortunate enough to tag along with them. And, and for rifle hunting, you know, it, it always seemed like you're, you know, you're, you're glassing from so far away and that it didn't seem very personal. Right. And, and, you know, and I have nothing against rifle hunting. I still enjoy it when I, when I do, I don't do it as much, but, um, when I, I think of now where, you know, my go-to and my preference is to bow hunt, uh, and just September, right? Like I think September just has such right. a, such a different feel to it than, you know, hunting in the snow in November and December. Uh, especially here in no Colorado, you get, you get the colors, right? And, and yeah. Last year we had amazing yeah. colors to go hunt through. So you get beautiful scenery and being in the woods is uh, a lot of fun. But, you know, kind of piggybacking off, uh, Joel, your point, uh, I'm the new guy in this hunting group. Obviously, Steve, you're, you're the veterano. And, uh, and Joel's following close behind, but it's Joel's fault why I, I bow hunt. Uh, <laughs> he got me dragged into this good whole for Joel. mess. Yeah, good for Joel, right? Uh, he got me dragged into this whole mess, and I, and I echo those points because I started out rifle hunting. And, you know, just the idea of being 20, 30, 40 yards from that massive of an animal as he's bugling, uh, you know, or just feeling the ground shake as he's moving through the woods, <laughs> that, that kind of feeling that, that sensation is something that gets your blood pumping, gets your adrenaline going and makes you want to come back and do it again, yeah. regardless of whether oh, or not no. you actually took that animal, that experience alone is enough to hook somebody. That's a great point. Uh, I would say for me, especially as time has gone on, for me, it's definitely become more about just playing that game, that calling game with those elk. And, you know, I kind of call it a chess match or playing with yeah. them. And again, for me, it's not so much about, you know, killing that elk or, or, you know, taking him home in the bed of my truck, although that's icing on the cake if that happens. But if I go out for me, a successful hunt is like you say, Jason, having an interaction with an elk at, you know, 20 yards or less, whether I could have taken him or not just knowing he came into the calls and was duped and, you know, I fooled him with what I was doing. is yeah. just really fulfilling and amazing. That's what separates elk hunting from any other animal in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. So it kind of echoing and, and piggybacking off of that, you know, obviously you're very well known from a calling perspective. And, and as I kind of mentioned in the introduction, you know, some as I got more into bow hunting, obviously the prevalence and necessity to understand that, you know, the language of elk, right? Like I think that there there is a language of elk. And so 
I start seeking out information and, you know, inevitably I run into, you know, lots of videos and things like that. And, and I've, uh, you know, I'll, I'll admit wholeheartedly, you know, I, I've watched tons and tons of, of your videos on YouTube and things like that, where, you know, you've given people so much information based on the, just the countless hours of experience that you have in the field. Um, maybe talk, let's, let's talk through that process and, and even more so like, you know, as a, someone who maybe isn't very confident in calling, I think there's definitely a huge factor in that, you know, folks get afraid to call yeah. because they, they don't feel like right. they're making the right sounds or that um, maybe they're making the, the wrong type of call and in, in situational things. Um, you know, talk about the, the person who's maybe in that boat, who's saying like, man, I really wish I knew how to do that better. Like what's, what's starting points for you? Like as, as a person who's like, I don't know anything, but this is something I want to do. Yeah. You know, for me, the first thing that I did when I sought about to become a good caller is just to try to become more elk-like in my sounds, not necessarily knowing exactly what sounds maybe that I was making, but I was just wanting to sound elk-like. And then after, you know, I got that down, which I'll say this, it's a journey. I, I never feel like I've mastered elk calling. It's always yeah. an ongoing process. Um, but I say the first thing as far as calling and strategy and you know technically is to not overcomplicate things i think that there's a saying that me and a friend have um too much research and not enough development <laughs> and and yeah. what i mean by that is some people will make it so complicated and they worry so much about what am, what is the bull saying what am i saying that it just confounds the whole thing um really to me what I boil it down to these days, first off, is am I dealing with a herd bull or am I dealing with a satellite bull? That's the biggest thing for me to know when I'm out there calling to, to a bull. Um, so if I'm dealing with a satellite bull, that's, that's my dream come true because that's an elk that wants company. Um, you know, he's all about uh, getting with some cows, being a herd bull himself or, or going in and stealing some cows from a herd bull. So with satellite bulls, I'm pretty much just doing what I refer to as just nice, mellow, standard, nasally cow calls. Um, another thing that I want to relate to your listeners is that um, you don't necessarily have to master a diaphragm mouth call to be a great elk caller and call a lot of elk in. You can really call a lot of elk in with an open read call. Um, I would say probably of all the elk I've called in, you know, in the past two to three decades, I would say probably 80% of those have been with an open read call. And again, because the reason is for that, those calls just by design, if you, if you get one that's got the right design, it's going to have that three-dimensional nasal quality to it. And the bulls just really respond to that. Then by contrast, if I'm dealing with a herd bull, I found more and more in the last several years that my calling has kind of changed and evolved as I've gone along in dealing with herd bulls, because what I find with them is that they've already got what they want. And their, and their motto is, you know, 10 birds in hand are better than one in the bush over there. Yeah. So what I found with them is that they are jealous protectors over what they already have. And that's those cows. <laughs> and they are super jealous of those cows. So, I, I use that to my advantage 
by getting super tight with him. That's the biggest thing with the herd bowl is distance. You've got to get in his zone and be a threat to him before you call to him. And the sound that I found to be most effective is uh, what I refer to, and you know, many of your listeners have heard it referred to as a lip ball bugle. Yeah, it's kind of that raspy, vibrating your lips. Um, that sound, I can either just do a pure lip ball, or I can do uh, what a friend of mine uh, kind of brought about, called it the uh, bull calling cow's bugle. It starts out with a high tone, and then it breaks down into that lip ball sound. And I'm telling you what, if you're in a bull's zone and you've got his cows right around you and you make that sound and you do it with the right tone, emotion and, uh, and volume, it's incredible the reaction you get out of that. They don't take their cows and go away. They come over to kick your rear and get you out of there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's awesome. And I think, um, you know, to me, the, those are the things where one of the, the first things that comes to mind for me is like, when you have an opportunity, you know, the first and foremost thing is you have to get out there and you have to get into the field and you have to find ways. And even, and you'll, you'll probably admit to this as much as anybody, just based on experience, like you got to screw it up a whole bunch of times and, and, you, <laughs> right. and you, right. you're going to, you're going to get in those scenarios and then you go back and you replay it and you go, ah, oh, what should we have done there? Right. right? Like what, 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 yeah. what did I you do? You always or play what? the what if game, right? Yeah. What yeah. And, and what we all, what we all have to realize is nobody bats a thousand. I yeah. think people um, sometimes get the impression, you know, that guys who are on TV or have videos or whatnot or have YouTube instructional videos that we bat a thousand. I by no means bat a thousand. And you're exactly right, Joel. You've got to make mistakes to learn from them. And you're always learning. I feel like I learn something every year I'm out there in the field. And, you know, every bull you deal with is a little bit different. He's got a little bit different temperament. Um, he's going to want, maybe want to hear a, a different sound than, it, than the other herd bull heard. So um, I think that's the biggest thing in my approach that's changed. I've not I don't necessarily go to the field now with a game plan. Uh, my game plan can change based on what I'm encountering out there. And it's, it, it's ever changing minute by minute. And I, I like to think that I'm able to adapt. And that's what makes me more effective out there is adapting to what I'm encountering. Right. No, I, I think that's, that's a, a great, um, you know, kind of approach and, and, and obviously, you know, what you do based on the fact that you, you're, you're taking inf information. I think that, you know, a lot of folks, uh, like for us, you know, typically, you know, we, we look at a seven to 10 day period, we try and identify that. And, and we can talk about all sorts of different things that, that, go into like, when do you go, you know, when do you plan your hunt? Sometimes it's based around family, who knows what it might be, but, um, right. you know, within that time frame, you know, I think we always have a strategy, which is, and, and maybe you can talk about this with your clients and, and even your personal, you know, hunts themselves is, you know, if you go into a, a seven day, you know, a week long hunt or whatever, um, you, you typically have kind of what I consider to be, you know, a mentality, you know, what, what's day one, what's a day one hunt look like compared to a day six hunt. Right. And, 
you know, I know for us, it's, you know, starting out with the best intentions and, and moving down that continuum to, uh, if we're still hunting on day six or seven, then it, it's, it's it, relative <laughs> calm down to extreme panic. As you get closer exactly. To it, it's like, I got to get a ball right now. Uh, versus bottom of the right, ninth inning. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm slow playing this right now. I'm beginning going, all right, going to kind of feel this thing out and as it wears on you get more frustrated and you yeah. start to hit the panic button and maybe you make stupider moves as you go because you're in that rush. Yeah. So to that, like what, what's your recommendation? I mean, especially for someone who maybe hasn't killed a lot of elk, um, you know, what do you typically tell a client or someone that, uh, you know, is, uh, going out with trying to put together that game plan, you know, and a lot of guys say, well, I don't want my hunt to end on day one, but what if day one is the only opportunity you get, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always say take the opportunities when they're given to you. As a matter of fact, my 2019 archery hunter, we had a phenomenal opportunity on day one of the archery hunt in Arizona this year or this past fall. Um, we didn't get the bull. It was almost shocking how we went from having no bugling in the morning, couldn't get anything to answer to all of a sudden two bulls answer my location bugle. Um, we start pursuing and, and they shut down, didn't make another sound. And all at once I get a visual on a couple of cows. And then I see what I think are the herd bull's legs out there in the tree about 120 yards away. So we had literally walked right up into the middle of them because they weren't being vocal. And uh, so I set my hunter up real quietly and I snuck back about 40 yards. And again, the first sound I made to that bull um, you know, it kind of flies against my instincts. My instincts are always to want to be a lover and to cow call. That's just kind of been my history <laughs> as a caller. But I said to myself, I said, no, the, the call to make right now at, the, at this bull, since you're right in here with his herd, is that lip ball. And sure enough, I made that lip ball and that bull bugled right back to me and came right over and walked up to 20 yards from the hunter. So, you know, I always tell my hunters, Take the opportunities that are given to you, and you'll know when it's the right bull. Like in Arizona, I tell my hunters, if the bull doesn't blow you away, if you have to think about whether it's a trophy bull or not, don't shoot him because he's not the right bull. Yeah. Um, and then then we can reassess as the hunt goes on. As we get later in the hunt, you know, um, I always tell a hunter, it's totally up to you. You don't have to reduce your standards down, um, but that's, you know, that's your personal decision. Um, because I tell them you're going to get opportunities and the hunt typically gets better as it goes. Um, I tell them once we get beyond say the 18th to 20th of September to the end of the month, um, which I see the dates for Colorado this year, I think are September 2nd through the 30th. Yeah. Very, very good dates. Um, if, yeah, if I could have any week to 10 days that I wanted to hunt, I would say I would pick the 20th to the end of the month most years is, is where I would want to be if I, if I was limited to that. Yeah. I think we, we saw that last year where, in fact, I think the last two years, you know, it really seemed like the peak of the rut was, we didn't even get into the rut last year. Yeah. It, it, it really we were there was the last week of the archery early. season. They, right. they weren't even calling. Yeah. And the year before right. that they had just started calling. And again, we were there late in the season. So, you know, we've seen a delay because it's been so warm so late into the season, um, we've seen a delayed onset of the rut, and that's hampered our ability to, you know, vocally find them 
right? Yeah. Like, you know, just call yeah. it. Because, uh, you know, last year when we went out, they stopped calling at 530 in the morning. They, they shut up for the entire yeah. rest of the day. I'm like, well, crap, yeah. they're, how are we supposed to find them now? We gotta, <laughs> you mean we got to walk all over this mountain? Okay, I guess that's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah. it was much more difficult to find them because they weren't, you know, they weren't herding up. They weren't, uh, they weren't bugling. Uh, it makes it a, a much more adventurous uh, trip than it would be if, if they were actually calling. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree, Jason. It makes it so hard to kill up with a bow when they're not vocal. Um, it's a you know, again, it, totally. And I think sometimes the worst thing you can do is get desperate and just start tromping around and getting into their bedding areas when they're not vocal. And then you blow them up. Um, you know, they move into a different drainage. So you're starting all over again. Plus now they know that they're, they're being hunted and pursued and, you know, they get less vocal when they're pressured. So you, I call it in Arizona. It's interesting that you say they stop bugling at 5:30. We kind of have the same scenario in Arizona. I call it the famous Arizona gray light shutdown. <laughs> you can be out there. You can go out there at 3:30 in the morning and be listening to them bugling during the darkness. You put no pressure on them, blow no calls at them, don't start pursuing them, and just like you said, right as first hint of gray light starts to hit, they shut down and they push away from you. And sometimes they might pipe back up after half an hour or so, maybe when they get close to their bedding area and they're trying to sort things out a little bit. But many times, many mornings, they don't talk again. And it it can make a, you know, an it's archery is very difficult. It's really frustrating. Yeah, so absolutely. What, I mean, so, that's what I live for. I live to hear those bugles and be able to go find them and get close and then when it doesn't happen, it's almost like a letdown or disappointment to my hunt. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what do you, so in the, in that circumstance, you know, what's, what, what's a, a strategy that you like to employ? Like you said, where you're, you know, you don't want to kick them out of their beds too much. You're trying to figure out, you know, obviously, hopefully you've done some homework and, and you have at least some idea you, you know, whether that's e-scouting or actually on foot and those types of things. Um, you know, what's a good recommendation or what are things that you utilize in those scenarios that maybe help improve your, your chances when, yeah, they are pretty quiet? Yeah. So what I do these days is I know that these elk are predominantly, I mean, 99 times out of 100, they're pushing into the wind in the morning when they're going from their feeding and watering area to their bedding area. They're pushing with their nose into the wind. So I can use that to my advantage by checking the wind with a wind checker. And then I say being cautiously aggressive, I will move in that direction that I anticipate them to go um, and, and just kind of flank them, so to speak. And it, it seems like I mentioned just a minute ago that many times when they get close to their bedding area, if there's more than one bull there, that's when they get a little bit grumpy with each other and that bull with the cows starts telling the satellite bulls, hey, we're laying down right here and you better, well, number one, he's telling those other bulls, you better stay away from me. And number two, he's talking to his cows to keep them right there with him. And in that instance, that gives you the opportunity if you've done that and kind of flanked them moving into the wind to potentially have encounters with them there as they get right there close to the bedding areas. And I've yeah. had success with that. But again, not every time. I don't. I don't bat a thousand doing that. But that's definitely a sure. tactic you can use, as opposed to just, you know, going back 
to the truck and, and stopping. <laughs> <laughs> and what, would you say uh, cow calling in those scenarios is, is maybe a, more of a go-to in that situation as opposed to, you know, wailing away on bugles? Yeah, again, I, if I were to label myself, I'm definitely more of a lover than I am a fighter for sure. So um, if I'm, you know, wondering or questioning what call I'm going to do, typically I'm going to lean more toward cow calling than I am toward bugling. Um, you know, you're dealing with a herd bull with cows and you're not in his zone, as I was talking about earlier. And if you're bugling at him from three or 400 yards away, he may bugle back to you, which is you know, sometimes good because you get a location on him. But if you continue to put that pressure on him with that bugle from too far away, he's just going to push away from you. Yeah. And I found many times that his cows, his, his, his lead cow will even pull the herd and pull him away from you when you're bugling too much because it's all about distance to deal with the herd bull. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of piggybacking off of that, uh, I know something that we've had numerous conversations about, and, and uh, I, I think it's such a wide array of either preference, uh, you know, people get kind of pushed in a lot of different directions. I know that when I think about apparel and things like that, um, what's, what's your kind of stance as far as, you know, scent control you know we see now like uh the popularity of a lot of folks using hex suits and those types of things like you know i know i had a conversation yeah. with like uh dirk durham last year and, and kind of asked him about that and i mean he he was just adamant like just play the wind doesn't matter play the wind all that stuff's garbage like um what, what what's yeah. your kind of stance with that you know because i know of, i feel like the apparel companies as one you know it's a huge marketing piece in one regard and you know you look at guys from you know years ago that killed elk in flannel shirts and stuff like that so you know <laughs> absolutely so uh, you know how's how's where's your your position on those types of things yeah, maybe somewhere in the middle. You know, it makes me kind of smile because I recently posted a video to YouTube and I had someone comment. Uh, I think they said something like 1995 called and they want the camo and bow back. <laughs> and it just made me laugh. And, and someone else commented back and said it doesn't matter. Um, and, and I would agree with that. It doesn't necessarily matter whether you have, the you know, the latest and greatest as far as camo and all of the equipment and everything. Um, you know, it's more about how you hunt, how you call, your approach to it. Um, although I will say, you know, these newer clothing lines, these more technical uh, lines of clothing, they're super comfortable to hunt in. I mean, it's like wearing a second skin. Um, if you encounter bad weather, it's definitely, um, you know, more, uh, more impervious to the elements and a lot more comfortable to hunt in. So, you know, I'll be the first to say I... You know, I've worn Sitka over the years. I'm now wearing, um, going to be wearing Scree this coming fall. Yeah. Um, really like those clothing lines. Um, as far as scent control um, and, and scent, I, I'm, I'm very much like Dirk in that I always hunt the wind 100% of the time. I carry a wind checker with me all the time. Matter of fact, one time I can remember in my guiding career, I left my wind checker at camp. And when I realized I had left it at camp, we were going out for the afternoon hunt. I literally was looking for it in my pack in a bag and I was driving and like an idiot, I was distracted and I drove the truck off the road <laughs> looking for my wind checker. So that's how fanatical I am about the wind and having a wind checker with me. Yeah. Um, 
But then, but then I'm also, you know, I, I do everything I can to control the scent on my clothing. Like, you know, I use the, you know, the scent killer or the scent away or the dead downwind, you know, to wash my clothing in. Um, I like to start clean, if that makes sense, and, and yeah. be as clean as I can. Um, because one thing I think it does is I think it buys you distance. I've noticed um, when I feel like I'm really clean, so to speak, that elk have to be closer to me in order to win me than if I've gone for two or three days and I'm a little more ripe. Uh, that's what I've really noticed is that it can buy you distance. It, it may be the difference between killing an elk and not because if he has to get in close um, to smell you or let's say you call him in and he, he's in your shooting lane and he catches a whiff of you and if it's a light whiff, sometimes they'll stand around a little bit and they'll kind of crinkle their nose and you know, lay their ears back and look around like, whoa, what, what's that? You know, that's, that's, that's not something I, I want to smell. Whereas if you're just ripe, they're just going to wheel and blow out of there yeah. really quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, in my situation, hunting with me, a hunter and a cameraman, obviously I have to hunt the wind a hundred percent of the time. Yep. But again, I like to be as clean as possible. If, if nothing else, it's for me mentally, it makes me feel better. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with the the complexities there? Like you said, you you have it's you and a client, and a cameraman. Like how do you deal with the complexities of the cameraman who's responsible for getting a shot, but then also you having to guide a client into an animal? Like how do you how do you manage all the bodies around you, putting everybody in the right spot so that you can get the great shot, but at the same time set your client up for his shot? Yeah. So ideally. What I tell my cameraman is you're just kind of an extension of the hunter. I want the cameraman to be set up where he's got as much of the same view that the hunter has as possible, because then he's more likely to get that animal on camera at the shot instead of missing that shot because he's in a lane where the cameraman can't see him. Um, you know, obviously setting them both up in the shade is paramount um, when you've got two people there. I can honestly say that over the years, um, you know, filming for over 20 years now, that I cannot honestly rec recollect one single time that a cameraman has blown a hunt for a hunter. Um, okay. Because elk, it's all about movement with elk. If, if you don't move, um, you know, when they're looking, they are not going to pick you. They, I think people a lot of times overestimate their eyesight their 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 nose is what is their biggest line of defense that's what they're all about is scent um you know i'll even say i'll tell my hunters that if a bull walks into your shooting lane and for whatever reason you have not been able to get back to full draw elk, elk just do not see things like we see um i tell them if you can draw your bow back smooth and easy straight back most nine out of 10 bulls are just going to turn and look at you and they're going to give you that opportunity to shoot. So I tell them, don't let an opportunity pass by and not try to get back to full draw if you haven't, because again, they're just going to turn and look. And as a caller, if I'm back behind, if I do hear that bull spook and run, the first thing I'm going to do is blow a call. Yep. And nine times out of 10, again, the bull's going to turn and look and give that hunter a quartering away shot. Yep. I think Maybe even a better angle. Yeah, I think that's that's you know the snippet of that I think is is so valuable because I, I do think a lot of times you know if a hunter gets into range, 
and you, you start to you, know, you feel that kind of tension building and your heart rate going up and a lot of a lot of times i think guys will freeze and say i can't move at all like he pinned me and i'm and i'm yeah. screwed there's no way i'm going to get to full draw right. and so like i think that's a great piece of information because like you said if you do it smoothly if you if you draw straight back and you're not really herky jerky or whatever the opportunity yeah. isn't lost, like you said. And, and like, right. you know, you're never going to know that if you just stand there and go, well, I should have drawn. <laughs> right. Yeah. I should have drawn. Worst, worst, case, yeah. worst case you blow them out of there. Best case you get your shot. Absolutely. So it's, it's yeah. Uh, um, springboarding off of what you just said, Joel, um, I literally had a couple called in a couple of bulls. Um, it's probably been two or three years ago. And I had a cameraman with me and I kind of whispered to him, I wasn't going to shoot these bulls. They weren't, you know, the caliber I wanted to shoot, but I whispered to him and I said, watch this. And I cow call, I had a mouth read in my mouth and I cow called a couple of times and we were in the wide open and the bulls were in the wide open. I blew a couple of soft cow calls and I just drew right in front of them again, nice and smooth. And they stood there and just stared at me. Yeah. I mean, for a minute, I, I could have shot all day long. Think, yeah. think yeah. about that though. What, what he just said in terms of what Darby and Dusty did last year on our hunt. So yeah. on our hunt last year, first day, um, we split up into two groups and uh, Darby, who we had mentioned earlier, they were they said they were walking along this path and had a cow at about 40 yards directly in front of them. And she allowed them to pull an arrow out of the quiver, notch it in the in the bow, draw back and get a frontal shot without moving. So, I mean, just yeah. thinking about what you just said there and then applying it to our hunt last year. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a million percent because I'm sitting there going, what a dumb cow. Like, why <laughs> the hell didn't she like spook? But yeah. like what you're saying is that they're not picking up the right. movements at that distance, then you're a lot safer than you really think you are. Yeah. 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 And again, like you said, if you don't try it, you, you'll never know if you could have gotten away with it or not. It's yeah. a constant learning experience out there. Yeah. Absolutely. That's fascinating. So, yeah. So, um, so, you know, I think that it, it's interesting because we've, we've talked a little bit about, you know, understanding maybe a, a little bit of a progression in calling and, and learning some of those things and becoming a better caller. And then we've talked a little bit about, you know, scent control and apparel and clothing. And, and there's just been this progression. And, and the good news is, is I, I believe the industry is, is really strong. I think the numbers in Colorado last year were an all time high, uh, in, in terms of archery tags. Uh, I heard some ridiculous numbers. I don't really know how, uh, they how oversold to them. Uh, how, how to validate that so i mean so that part of it's good but when i think about the future you know and, and i look into you know what what's still out there you know what's what's missing is there is there anything in your your mind as far as the industry goes or hunting goes that it's like we haven't identified that yet or there's still room to grow like do you see anything like that in in your mind based on your experiences gosh i, I have to say um nothing just jumps out at me um there are so many amazing resources out there the, these days and so many talented people um, that have so much to offer. Um, you know, like you say, there, there's all kinds of guys out there that, that know elk calling, they have all, kind, all kinds of success, they have YouTube series. Um, there's just so much you can learn these days. Um, I believe that the calls have come along by leaps and bounds. I mean, you know, when Rocky Jacobson invented that pallet plate call back in the early 90s, that to me was the most substantial 
uh, leap in elk calls up to that point. Yeah. Um, and then when, when the open read calls uh, came out, I don't really know if it was uh, Carlton, Jacobson, or Primos that first came out with an open read call, maybe somebody else that I don't know. Um, but that was a huge advancement. And now um, these days, the, the bugle tubes or grunt tubes, um, you know, they, they kind of look like base wiffle ball bats somewhat. Yeah. Um, but what they do is they, they create a real resonance and three-dimensional quality because they create back pressure. Um, you know, so those are just, just phenomenal. Um, you know, we've got high definition and 4k cameras that are affordable. Um, it's just amazing. I, I don't know 20 years from now, we're going to look back and, and I, I don't know what we'll see that that is obsolete, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to continue to advance. Um, but I just think that the hunting industry is in a real good place right now. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good advocates for it. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a it's a great time in hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think that the emergence of you know the digital platforms? I mean, I know like for us, obviously, you know, I I I don't even have TV anymore. I mean, I I have you know right. internet TV, and and the the interesting part about that is like I go into YouTube every night. I go into even Amazon. You know, I can go into Amazon Prime and type in elk hunting and. You know, right. whether it's a, a Randy Newberg or yourself or, you know, uh, go into YouTube and you see, you know, like the born and raised guys and, and some of these other folks where do you think that that has been, uh, you know, what, what do you think are the ups and downs of that? I think that it's exposed so many more people based on the ability for them to, to reach those things. Um, and yet at the same time, we look at it and go, well, I don't want everybody to know that we're hunting. <laughs> We've already sold enough. Yeah. We don't need anybody else out there. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's making a lot. Um, in my opinion, it shortens the learning curve because there's so many resources out there. You know, like you guys say, the born and raised, Elk 101, uh, Dirk, uh, you know, all these people, um, you know, guys like you with podcasts, we can we can learn a lot from that. Um, you know, selfishly, I would say for me, the digital age hurt me with my DVD business, sure. the Extreme Bull series. Yeah. Um, Basically, I had to come to the realization that that was over and, right. you know, it was time to move on from there. Um, so at that point, I decided to, to make a move and, and get into TV. Um, and I'm being on TV somewhat limits me in what I can do digitally because, of course, airing my show on Sportsman Channel, and I can appreciate this, is that, you know, they don't want my content that's going to be airing starting here on June yep. 29th and running through the end of the year. They don't want me bleeding that out onto YouTube or Amazon or wherever else where everybody can see it for free. So I totally get that. So, you know, there's a there's a period of time there, a year where I have to hold, uh, you know, my episodes. <laughs> um, so that that hurts me somewhat, not just being able to throw everything out there um, on YouTube where people can see it for free. Um, but more and more as I get more seasons, um, you know, done, I'll be able to put more and more content out onto YouTube because I've been pretty absent from YouTube for quite some time. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, and that's why, because I started filming for this Elk Camp TV show back in 2016 and all of the content has been, uh, you know, captured for producing that show. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think people realize how much work it requires to, to get the production done and, and the timing, like you said, which is to release it and, and like you're know, shooting a whole year ahead of time. Yeah. You know, like we have a, a friend of ours, uh, Garrett, I mean, they do, uh, from top priority, um, they do you know, like full draw film tour every year. And so I talked to him and, and, um, he just actually got back into town and we're going to have him over someday and, and kind of their, their rollout period. You know, I remember talking to him, uh, months ago and they're helping some people actually produce, uh, you know, some of their short films for full draw and stuff like that. And he's talking about, yeah, you know, we're, we've got this one and this one and this one kind of in the tank and we've got to wait before we release this stuff because of sponsorships and all these other things. Right. And, and so, like you said, you know, there, there's definitely an up and upside to that and a downside to that, especially when you look at it, if you're f full time mm -hmm. and, and it's something that you're trying to create a livelihood from, you know, the monetization and, and the digital aspect of, of what's going on today, you know, being on people's radar, like you said, it, it's, it, it can be daunting. Like it, it's hard because you feel like you always have to be on everyone's radar. You have to be putting out stuff and keeping up and, and it can get exhausting. Right. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of say, be careful what you wish for. Uh, so any of your listeners out there who are, you know, dreaming of being in this hunting industry, there, there's a good and bad to it, I, I will say. And um, the first thing for me is I had to decide whether hunting for myself was more important to me yeah. than video and guiding people. And I decided a long time ago that I valued sharing, um, you know, incredible experiences with other people who have great tags as much as I would hunting myself, especially if it meant just over-the-counter tags hunting small elk up in the mountains. I mean, that's totally fine. And I know a lot of people love that um, because again, be careful what you wish for. With what I'm doing now, I have sacrificed in large part my own personal uh, hunting. I have not drawn a tag in Arizona since 2010. Um, oh, wow. So it's been quite a while since, I, yeah. Um, but I still absolutely love what I do. I wouldn't change a thing. Um, you know, editing for me and doing this show is a lot of fun. It's a little bit of a love-hate relationship. Editing can be a little bit of a grind. Yep. Um, I kind of equate it to maybe writing a term paper when you were in college. You need just a little bit of uh, inspiration and motivation um, to do it well. I think I've gotten a little better over the years at being able to just sit down, though, and grind through it and just be committed to it. Um, but, you know, a lot of times I'll look outside and think, you know, I would rather be out there right now um, – going on a hike or shooting my bow or whatnot. But when I'm up against the deadline and I'm pushing to get episodes done, you know, you, you just got to sit down and be committed to it and, yeah. and afford yourself little breaks here and there. Yeah. But uh, it, it it's all great. And again, I wouldn't change anything. Sounds like you need to hire an editor or somebody so you can go out and, <laughs> and shoot and, and hike and let him worry about editing and cutting and producing your show. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt, Jason. Um, I, it's kind of bad because I'm kind of a perfectionist in that way. Um, my first season of Elk Camp, I did have um, Steve West and his team produce my show and they did the editing. And, they, and I will say they did a phenomenal job. Um, I was very happy with it. Um, but again, it's very nice and very empowering to be able to, you know, edit yourself and control exactly how it's portrayed and what goes on there. Uh, yeah. um, a million, so I do a million percent, dude. That's my business outside of the hunting side of things. I'm exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. I'm a control freak. Yeah, it's my it's my product. <laughs> I'm going to put it out whether I like it or not. Yeah.
Yeah, good or bad, right? It can be good or bad for us. Yeah, so so kind of continuing on a vein that you touched on a little bit, which is, you know, the guiding and the experience. Um, You know, our conversation uh, as of of really recent here was, you know, I watched uh, one of the recent episodes um, of Elk Camp. And, you know, at the end of every episode, you guys, you know, you, you put out there about your, your program, which I believe is, is relatively new, which is your zero Humvees. And yes. I, I saw that and, you know, I, I don't know if, if you get all the credit for that. And if you do, that's awesome. But I'm going to give give huge kudos to it because my, my first initial thought, and I want to kind of let people know more about it, um, is that this is something unlike anything I've ever seen in, in terms of creating an opportunity for people to get an experience that obviously includes, uh, you know, a, a guided hunt and, and understanding a, the tag process and whatever. So I'd love for you to kind of just talk about like conceptually, how did that kind of come to light um, and tell people more about it? Because I, you know, for me, uh, as I've told you kind of in our interactions, you know, I'm, I'm on board and this is something that I definitely want to do uh, because I, I think that the opportunity is great and the program itself uh, from its, its, kind of origination and, and setup is is just awesome yeah thank you joel that, i appreciate you saying all that um yeah i just found that more and more um besides guiding being really competitive in arizona right um there's just so many outfitters and lots of good ones i will say um that more and more i was seeing that it's just um very difficult for most people to come up with, you know, six or $7,000 to pay for a guided hunt. That, that's just out of the financial reach for most people. So, you know, with that uh, came the thought, well, how could we make it possible for more people to be able to afford to come on a hunt like this and not make it so exclusive just to the more wealthy? Um, and, and, and so, yeah, because of that, this concept was developed where um, you know, like you were saying, it's called zero hunt fees. Basically, the long and short of it is if someone wants to join, they pay $349 a year. Um, that covers their yearly hunt consultation and application um, consultation where I help them choose units that suit them specifically for their goals and desires on the hunt. Um, so I help them get applied and all of that. And uh, the best part about the membership is uh, if they draw a tag in Arizona, their guided hunt is covered by their membership. So um, matter of fact, I guided a muzzleloader hunt this past year in Unit 9. Um, A guy named Mark Ulrich drew Unit 9 muzzleloader. It was his very first year in the program, and uh, he drew the muzzleloader tag and uh, guided him on the hunt, filmed his episode for uh, Season 3 of Elk Camp. So that was a very inexpensive elk hunt for him. No, I remember him even guided trip. I'm in. Sign me up. I remember him even saying when we were with his bull at the end of the hunt on camera, he said, "I saved enough money that I was able to buy this new CVA muzzleloader." Yeah, because <laughs> he had saved so much money. That's what it's and um, you know, there's there's really you know people think that there's a catch to it, and there's really not. If there if there is a catch. It's that Arizona is on a draw and you have to draw a tag in order to hunt with us and to, you know, utilize that, you know, that $349 membership on a hunt. Um, You know, but I do say that half of the non-resident tags in Arizona are random. Half of them are issued based on bonus points 
and a full 50% of them are random. So you've always got a chance yeah. in the Arizona draw is what makes it awesome. It's truly a hybrid draw system. Another great thing about it is, is that the draw legitimately considers both your first and your second choice. So when you understand that, what that allows you to do as an applicant, and I help my members with this to understand this, is you swing for, you swing for the fence with your first choice and go for that really phenomenal hunt. And then you back it up with a second choice that still meets your baseline expectations as far as trophy quality and hunt quality goes, but that has better draw odds than your first choice. And that's the wise way to apply in Arizona. And I help my members with that. Um, yeah, we've had guys again, first year in the program, first time applying in Arizona, zero bonus points, who've drawn some phenomenal tags and uh, gotten great bulls with us on their zero hunt fees membership. How many how many of those guided trips do you do per season? Is it just is it you just grabbing one guy or are you grabbing multiple guys? Yeah, so for me personally, I can only guide in Arizona, say three elk hunters in, in a year. That's that's what I can do. Um, but I have right out about a dozen guides who help me yearly. We guide most years anywhere from 10 to 12 archery hunters. Um, last year we were 11 for 12 with our archery hunters. Six of those guys were zero hunt fees members, by the way, and they were six for six on their hunt. So they were a hundred percent. Then we guide, oh, maybe two to three early firearms hunters, be it muzzleloader or rifle. And then we guide about again, uh, eight to 12 late rifle hunters total. So we're not guiding a ton of people, um, but each person's getting a real quality personalized one-on-one -on -one hunt is, is how we do it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So definitely quality over quantity. Yeah, yeah I would say so. Uh, I think the a lot of the units that we're hunting in Colorado sit around you know eight, nine, ten percent. So yeah, uh, it's a little little bit higher uh, <laughs> based based on that. But um, you know, kind of just following up with that. You know, obviously you had a ton of experience in Colorado. Um, obviously living in Arizona, guiding in Arizona now, like. What are the things that you see as uh, differences in, in styles of hunt and even, you know, a lot, I notice a lot of, like you said uh, earlier, being flat ground or whatever, you know, terrain wise, like what are ups and downs or things that you've kind of over the years, you know, grown to like about, you know, one or the other or both? Yeah, I would say first off that I tell a lot of people who are used to hunting uh, the more mountainous states like, you know, Idaho, Colorado, uh, maybe Wyoming, Montana, is that they have to understand that Arizona is more of a country club elk hunt, if you will. And I say that's not in a bad sort of way. Um, you know, most of our units, like you, like you said, Joel, are flatter to more moderate terrain, especially during the rut. Now, I will say that on the late rifle hunts, these elk will will migrate and they'll get in some nasty places during that time of the year. So yeah. it can be a physical, very challenging hunt during late rifle. But on the archery hunt, by and large, um, yeah, you're hunting them in more easy to moderate terrain. But with that uh, comes the fact that these elk are still a very physical animal. And, you know, now that they're in easier terrain, they, they can move easily three to four miles from where they feed and water to where they bed and they can do it in a hurry. Yeah. So if a guy's not in good hiking shape, they can still leave you in the dust, even in that easy terrain. Um, but, but yeah, I, I would say Arizona for me, it was just a dream come true to, uh, 
you know, to be an outfitter here, um, to get to hunt these great units every year. I, I just can't think of anything that I, that I would rather do with my life. It's, it's an incredible thing. You could do a lot worse things. Yeah, <laughs> you certainly could be. <laughs> Touch real quick. You just mentioned that uh, about being in shape um, for the terrain there in uh, in Arizona. Uh, really, I guess any any elk hunt, you got to be in shape. Is is do you find that that's one of the biggest hurdles or obstacles that you face when you guide um, people that either coming to your state or guide or hunt, you know, in other areas? It, I would say by and large that the hunters that we get are usually prepared for the hunt and they usually do fine. Um, you know, matter of fact, my muzzleloader hunter last year, that zero hunt fees member, Mark, um, he had some real back problems, but he was a tough dude. And I mean, he stayed with me step for step. I can never recollect actually having to wait on him, even when we were hunting some more physical terrain. Um, but I would say, yeah, to prepare for an Arizona hunt, you definitely want to be in that good hiking. I call it getting your mountain legs on you because I think there's a difference between just taking walks and power walking or jogging versus having your mountain legs. And that by that, I mean walking on hiking on uneven terrain yeah. where you're, every step, it's changing your balance and things like that. So, you know, it's a good idea for guys to, um, you know, hike in that kind of terrain as much as they can as well to, pre to prepare for the hunt. Um, if you've got a late rifle hunt, again, that by and large is going to be a more physical hunt. And for whatever reason, it seems like we get um, older gentlemen who draw those late rifle hunts. And occasionally that can be a challenge because, you know, father time is undefeated. That's just a reality. Right. And it's it's going to get all of us. And, and I will say I can't do what I could do at 30. I like to think that I hunt wiser and smarter now. Um, but I realize that, you know, when I get to be 70, 75, I'll probably still have the d desire and drive to hunt, but I won't be able to hike and get to places, you know, like I can now. Um, but yeah, I always tell people the more um, prepared you can be physically, uh, the more successful and the more enjoyable the hunt's going to be for you. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, and that's, that's a lot of our stance and, and what we're trying to do is, bring to light what I believe is, is something that is some open space in this you know industry, which is providing people, you know, my background is 20 years in, in sports performance and strength and conditioning with, you know, a lifelong of being in the woods. But I kind of recognize that, you know, both of those things have a little bit of an intersection. And we know that uh, if we can provide people with better ammunition, that the conditioning and the fitness and like you said the the uneven ter terrain and all these other things you know putting you know w as you know the work starts when when the animal's on the ground yeah well if you're in the <laughs> country uh that that's a big physical endeavor and and so our mission has been to try and create an opportunity for people to come in contact with us provide them with better resources so that when they get an opportunity you know on on one of your hunts or their own hunts or whatever that that experience can be enhanced. And we've talked to a lot of guides and, and we get that a lot from them. They'll tell us all, like we, we encourage people, you need to be in shape. You need to have a level of fitness. And, and we've even had guys say the, the size and, and the, the amount of trophy that someone harvests sometimes is dependent upon their fitness level. You know, how much can they sure. endure yeah. in a week's time? And, and so 
Um, we always kind of like to touch on that because obviously it kind of speaks near and dear to us. Um, and then, you know, learning at the same time and, and getting, you know, insight from, from you and, and folks like yourself that, you know, just have such a wealth of knowledge and background. And, and um, you know, as we kind of wrap up, I, I got one fun question for you, but as we kind of wind down here. Yeah. Who, who, who's who's a better elk caller, you or Corey? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say I have been personally around Corey, and it's it's a totally different thing when you're around someone and you hear them call, you know, when they're right beside you versus on video or on YouTube yeah. or whatnot. Um, yeah, Corey, Corey is incredible. I've yeah. um you know, I would say, I don't know if he's won the world calling contest 11 or 12 times. Um, that's, that speaks volumes. Um, I don't get in that contest, but that's not to say that I, I could beat Corey. I, I highly doubt that I could. Um, yeah, he's an incredible caller. I can remember, um, probably more than 10 years ago, going to one of the world calling competitions at the, uh, RMAF, uh, national event. And, um, just going, wow, that dude can chuckle. And I kind of said about that's where I got the drive to learn to bugle better and to learn to chuckle better yeah. by listening to guys like Corey and Dirk and guys like that. And I feel like my my bugling especially has really come along in the last few years. And again, it's by being inspired um, and listening to guys like that. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think one thing you touched on early in the, in the episode here, you talked about bugling or, or calling with emotion. Uh, and I think that that really stuck with me because I think people can just they can blow across a reed and make a sound. They can, you know, wail into a tube. But it, there there is another level there when you input emotion into it to, you know, to to create the, you know, sequence things and create the right tones that you actually speak to an animal versus I'm just going to blow through based off. I'm supposed to start low, then go high, then go low again. And then I'm supposed to you know vary the cadence. So. Uh, I think that speaks a lot to, you know, you know, what's something that I try and do and, I, and Joel, you try and do it too as well, but is you're trying to speak a language and when you speak language, you can't just be a monotone robot. You got to have some emotion. Absolutely. That is so good, Jason. That is so spot on um, because I like to say when you make a call, especially a bugle, that you're making a statement. You're not asking a question. If you're asking a question, you're not blowing that call properly, especially when you're bugling. You want to walk up and punch that herd bull right in the nose right. and make him deal with you and insult him and flirt with his cows at the same time is what you're saying <laughs> through that call. Right. And let me tell you, he's not a, a, a herd bull who is jealous and dominant, which that's what herd bulls are all about. He, he's going to come over and, and, and look to get you out of there when you make a call like that and make a statement with it. Yeah. Uh, and that's what, you know, the guys that are the best in the world and Corey and Dirk and, you know, yeah. all the other you know champions that you've had, that's what they try and do is they try and give you that emotion. They want you to make you feel like on the other side of that curtain, there's an actual animal sitting right there. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, Absolutely. that that's the interesting part too. And, and I, and I also, you know, I've heard Corey talk about this, which is, there's definitely a difference between calling in a contest and, and being out in the field. Right. And, and so I think sometimes people, you know, have to understand that, that there is a difference between those two, although the sounds may be similar and, and they're, they're trying to, right. trying to exude the same type of, uh, of sounds and things like that. 
Um, it, it's not the same as, as taking information that you're getting while you're out there and then choosing the appropriate things to do at the right time. And, and obviously, you know, the things that Corey's done with Elk 101 and, and the amount of information that he, he provides in his program. And I know that you, you're uh, pretty close with him as well. And the stuff that, that you've done as well, you know, just speaks volumes for what I think Jason and I have, have always felt by kind of crawling our way into this space is just the welcomeness and the wealth of, of you know amount that, that folks like yourself are willing to to help people understand more and, and put it out there with with kind of the notion that you know you're not going to get you know no, no one's sending you checks in the mail for all these you know videos and things that you give out freely and and to us that's refreshing because in our our you know other business you know within training and stuff like that uh it, it's, it's a, a lot, lot different, different. <laughs> a lot different yeah. than that so um, more competitive and secretive oh, for yeah. sure it's cutthroat too no no don't, one wants to share anything yourself. you know outside of hunting yeah. uh hunting locations you know that's right. the only part where i think hunters go yeah. oh yeah we were we were sure. over in, yeah. in this area kind of and no one <laughs> exactly. wants to give away that but but in terms of other things you know I, I think it's very commendable and and inviting that in in this space folks like yourself are, are so welcoming and, and so willing to give that information and I think you know just even in our our short uh you know dialogue that you and I've had you know it, this is awesome to, to get you here and i you know, to me, I'm going to have to go back and watch this to re-listen to it, you know, and just, just kind of digest Unwrap all the it. things that you've shared. So I, I greatly appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you saying that, Joel. And I kind of feel like I'm just being a good steward and passing it along, just like it was passed along to me by my dad. And then, like I said, by guys like Rocky Jacobson and Will Primos and uh, Wayne Carlton, guys like that, who I looked up to when I was younger. And I really appreciate everything they did to help me and, and make my learning curve shorter. And that's, you know, what I'm all about. And hopefully, um, you know, something that I say can help help other people have a shorter learning curve and be successful on their next elk hunt, because that would be very fulfilling for me. Yeah, most definitely. And based on the, you know, the success rates within hunting, you know, a lot of people that, that have such a desire to do this and yet, uh, you know, the success rate is so low. And so for folks that are just trying to, you know, fill their first tag, they're trying to, you know, find those opportunities. And when you have a week of your, of your year, and that maybe is all you get, you know, to have all this stuff that's available to them and the things that you guys do is, is really, really awesome. And hopefully folks will find this useful. Um, we do want to make sure that, that everyone understands or knows where to find you. I know you're, you're on Instagram and, and Facebook and, and, you know, YouTube pages and stuff like that. Um, you know, they can find you, you know, Elk Camp TV. I know you have your own personal pages as well. And, uh, you know, we, we encourage folks to come out and find everything that, that you make available to them. And, and we really appreciate your time today. Yeah, it's been awesome, you guys. I really appreciate you having me on. And um, I'm sure there's a lot that I didn't cover. But again, it was a great, great time to be on here with you guys. And uh, really looking forward to September and getting through what we're going through right now, situation with COVID. Um, yeah. yeah, I just want to be an encouragement to people in that regard to get through. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave your questions and comments below. We also encourage you to subscribe to our channel and hope that you'll tune into future episodes. Until next time, may your aim be true and your tags be filled. Thanks again.